Welcome back to the Hybrid Canine Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Hubble, and today we are on Instagram Live answering your questions. So if you'd like to join us in the future for a future podcast Q&A, make sure you're following us at Hybrid Canine on Instagram and TikTok. Took a little week break there from the podcast to do some reorientation, set up a new studio in my spot, and hopefully the sound quality's improving as well with a more dampened environment. But we're going to get right to it and answer some questions. Our first one's by Shot by Joshua. Do you join in any dog sports? Um, so personally, I don't compete in any dog sports. I don't have a dog that is really suitable. If I were to compete in a dog sport, I'd be really interested to do PSA just because that's what I've had the most exposure and experience with. Uh, one of my good buddies, Jerry Bradshaw, is the founder of PSA. And so I've been to national tournaments, I've been to their clubs, I've been to other clubs, I've seen a lot of protection work, and I think that's the thing that is most interesting to me. Um, I really like the way that they train their dogs because they have so many different aspects to what they do, from the obedience to the protection, and then like just the variety of different scenarios that are created. I think it's very similar to what people might experience in real life scenarios, and it's cool to just watch. So currently, I don't, I don't participate in any dog sports, but perhaps in the future, I'd be interested to do PSA. The thing is, is that, you know, you kind of have to be all in and you can only really be all in on so many things at once. So as much as it would be cool to have a dog that could be trained for that, you know, I'm just not in a place in my personal life right now where I could take on another dog and and really give it the attention and focus it needs to be successful at that. But uh, it is very tempting and it's amazing to watch what a lot of the competitors in PSA are able to achieve with their dogs. Here's a great question. Confident canines training, best ways to market your dog training business. So there's a lot of different ways to market your dog training business. And a lot of it is predicated on the type of business that you're trying to create, right? Me personally, I really love education. And so I do a lot of content. I do a lot of stuff like this to build trust online and to participate with the community and my audience. But there's a lot of different ways, depending on the type of business that you want to run, right? So for instance, if you uh, want to have a very strong local presence in your community, you could be doing community events, you could do a pack walk, you could, you know, put flyers up and do a lot of the traditional marketing, leaving business cards and things like that. I'm a big proponent of the digital side. I think that using social media, doing something like what I'm doing right now is an amazing way to market your business. Um, there were years in times past where a lot of dog trainers were successful by just running a lot of Google ads. And for any dog trainers out there, and I'm sorry for anyone that's just a regular dog owner that doesn't care about business at all, but I think this will help a lot of people. You know, a lot of dog trainers out there are not great marketers. I'm in a different situation, whereas I came from a big, strong marketing background and just happened to start building a dog training business. And so for me, marketing has been at the core of what I really do, especially with hybrid canine and formerly canine performance. Uh, with this business in particular, you know, with so much stuff online, I really didn't want to do a lot of Google ads. A lot of people will offer dog trainers Google ads. And the problem with Google ads is that it attracts the wrong type of customers, right? Everyone on this stream right now is a very passionate dog owner. You're someone that obviously follows this account, probably many other dog training accounts, and you have an active interest in learning more about how to resolve issues with your dog. The thing with Google ads is that they typically target people, right? That are doing an intent-based search. So think about what you use Google for, right? It's a search engine. So oftentimes you're on there and you're searching dog trainer near me. My dog's aggressive. You know, people are searching for a, a solution to an immediate problem, meaning that 
they're oftentimes desperate for a solution or a fix, right? And the truth be told, and anyone that's a dog trainer knows this, is that you don't always want to work with people that are in a state of desperation, right? Of course, there are dogs and we want to help people, but you know, the ideal client is someone that is bought into the idea of training, someone that doesn't need to get sold on the idea of dog training, but is so interested in achieving a higher quality of life with their dog that they are actively seeking information and resources and, and uh, support before, you know, they have problems that they need to fix, right? And so the thing with Google ads is that it oftentimes attracts the wrong type of clients in the sense that you're going to be dealing with a lot of people that are desperate for a quick solution, a lot more reactivity or potentially aggressive dogs. That's why I'm such a big proponent of social media. That's why I think everyone really needs to be on social media, sharing their work, sharing all the secret sauce for free. Because what happens is when you share your information for free, right? You think about Instagram, TikTok. When you post something on your feed, that's your way of interacting and developing a a reputation with people that don't know you, right? So I want I want everyone out there to think about how if you're a dog trainer, if you have any other kind of business that relies on social media, I want you to really understand what I'm about to explain here. And it's the way that I think about social media and how to utilize it to actually build your business, right? So when you're posting on social media, a lot of people out there, especially dog trainers I see all the time, they're just posting willy-nilly on the feed and the stories. There's no real strategy there. And the strategy that I would encourage people to really think about is the fact that there's different tiers to what you're doing on your, on your platform, right? Think about the way that you engage with other people and the type of content that you see. You'll see me on my feed post a lot of, you know, meme type stuff, you know, reposts from TikToks, funny things that take pop culture and these sounds that are trending and just layer in the ideas of dog training on top of it. You know, things that we can all resonate and relate to. Right. And that's because when you post that way on the feed, it's likely to be shared. People engage with it. People comment. And that's what tells that the algorithm, right, to share your stuff to more people that share similar interest in that. The feed is not necessarily the best place to try and sell stuff, right? And that's what I see so much of the time is, you know, showing results, showing all these things in the feed when really the feed is designed to be shown to people that don't already really know who you are, right? Because once someone's once someone sees something on your feed or they see you on their explore page, they click through, they see your feed, see that you're consistent with the content they're probably going to follow you. And so once they follow you, where you really want to nurture and give people the why behind the how is in the stories, right? So you want to take that to your stories and you want to post the daily stuff. You want, that's where you want to let your personality come out. You want people to get an idea of who you are, right? Because I'm sure you guys all have people on your story each and every day that you watch that are constantly posting. They're pinned to that top of that story. And so your feed, right, is the opportunity to post things that are going to resonate with other people that are within the in the space, right? Other people that are looking for dog training related information or advice, your story is where you can really nurture them. That's where you want to nurture this audience that you're growing. You want to share more of the ins and outs, more of the details, and add more context to whatever general concept you're talking about in your feed. A lot of dog trainers will be critical and say, oh, you're sharing basic stuff. You're sharing the, the same boring this, that, the other. That's what the feed's all about. It's to, it's to talk to people that don't already know who you are. And once they know who you are, you want to drive them to your story or another place. Maybe it's an email list where you can nurture them and you can really build a relationship and, and, uh, and give yourself the opportunity to become the subject matter expert to this audience, right? So when you're in your stories, that's why it's important there to understand how to create a proper call to action. Ultimately, you want to move people from your feed to your story to ideally a website or clicking something where you can get their email their phone number, getting them to fill out a form, something that can collect their information. So think about it in tiers, right? 
people go through the first tier of going to your feed. And then when they're on your story, they're nurtured. And then by the time they're then filling out a form on your website, it's not someone that's desperate. It's not someone that's looking for immediate help. It's someone that's been nurtured by your content. That is like, this is the person I want to work with. I resonate with the way they talk, the way they explain things, whatever it might be. Right. And this is how you're going to end up with a book of clientele that is perfect, the, the exact people for you, because you're never going to have to sell dog training in that situation. You'll always have people that are bought into wanting to work with you specifically through the diligence that you've done in nurturing them and establishing yourself as a relevant expert in what they need help with. So when it comes to marketing your business, to get back to the initial question, there's a lot of different ways to go about it, but you want to keep these different things in mind is how are you moving people from, I don't know who you are at all to you're the person that I absolutely have to work with. And so when you achieve that, it won't matter who's out there criticizing you or saying this, that about how you do things, because you'll know in your heart, you have an exact method of getting people from stranger to, you know, fan, you know, someone that wants to work with your business. So that would be my advice when it comes to the actual marketing tactics. You know, these change all the time. One year it's Facebook ads. Now it's TikTok ads. The marketing tactics change, right? But the fundamentals of how marketing works always stays the same. You want to create a funnel a value, a ladder of value that sends people into being the perfect uh, customer for you. And that's how you can grow your business while actually having really strong clientele. Sorry for the business tangent. Got a little passionate there for a second, but that was a great question from Confident Canines Training. Hopefully, especially on the pod, this, this helps some people out that are struggling about how to think about marketing in their business. All right. So Here's another question from Rian Del Obo, I believe. How do you deal with a dog having separation anxiety? So, you know, I always like to take a step back before we just address the question. And I want us to think about, you know, how do we, how do we like really think about separation anxiety? So what is anxiety for us, right? Well, anxiety is usually how we feel when we're in a state of confusion or we're uncertain and we're nervous about the expectations around us, right? Now, if we combine that with the word separation, that means that the dog perhaps has a lot of confusion, even heightened and exacerbated confusion and nervousness in the absence of, you know, the owner's presence. So how do we, you know, come back from this? Well, that means that we need the dog to really have a lot more confidence. And so you need to then participate in things and give your dog activities and, um, other stimulation that's going to allow them to build that confidence. So it means that you know, you need to look at the lifestyle you're living with your dog. Are you doing too much for them? You know, are you not allowing them the opportunity to, you know, turn the cogs in their head and work through frustration and learn how to self-soothe? So here are some things you can do for that. You know, teach your dog a place command and start using leash pressure to lead them onto different objects, different services, textures, have them use their nose, you know, have them either um, sniff out food in your home or in your backyard. You can do all types of things that help to stimulate your dog and build engagement help them build that confidence. And, that, and then on top of that, help them work on some self-soothing by teaching them duration uh, place command or something that where they can learn to uh, calm themselves down when they get in this state of anxiety, right? It's the same way a lot of us know to take some deep breaths, you know, go to a different room and remove ourselves from the environment for a little while. When we're younger and we haven't learned those, you know, coping mechanisms and coping skills that are healthy, it can be really challenging, right? We've all seen someone or we've all per perhaps personally dealt with some time where we've broken down or you know, I had so much anxiety where we weren't able to really function as our normal self. It's important to be able to learn those skills in an environment that's safe. So that way, when you're in a high intensity situation, you're able to better self-soothe. 
so those are some things I'd recommend when it comes to dealing with a dog with separation anxiety is in the moments that you have outside of these highly stimulating environments that the anxiety is being, um, is, is being exhibited in, you need to practice outside of that. So you want to, you know, try these different things, you know, and also remove yourself from being so engaged with your dog. So this might look like cutting back on some of the affection, not doing baby talk and all that stuff to them. Uh, those are some of the things that I would recommend in terms of dealing with separation anxiety. So I've seen a lot of comments in the comment section, um, but if you guys can drop the questions in the Q&A, that will help me make sure I don't miss them because there's a lot of people hopping in and out of the stream and, and asking different stuff. So I don't want it to get lost. But also, what do you guys think about these lights? These are like the coolest lights that I could have ever picked. Um, very stoked about them. I just got them yesterday and they are very, very cool. All right. Next question is from... Loganator17, how do you train a dog to drop objects he shouldn't have? Mine has snapped at me, also biting me when taking a napkin out of my hands. It makes me worried about my daughter who is four. This is absolutely a, a important question and something a, a very important skill I think all dogs should have. I actually made a video about this not too long ago about the, you know, out command, leave it, drop, whatever you want to call it. But it's Sometimes people go about teaching this in, the, in a very incorrect way and it can create resource guarding, you know, the, the semblance of what could build into resource guarding. So I'm glad that you asked this and here's what I would recommend. So if you want your dog to drop objects that they shouldn't have, you need to practice this with other, with, in more of a controlled setting, right? So say you're playing with your dog, they have a toy, you're playing tug, they're super excited. Rather than taking the toy from them, right, and taking something that, you know, they're being possessive over, you want to teach them to exchange something, right? So let's say you are trying to teach them the out command. You can give them the command and then offer another toy, maybe a food reward, something else to where the value of the other object supersedes the thing that they have and they let go of it. To give them that other object and just switch back and forth until they understand what that command means. It means to release that with their mouth. And then that can carry over into these other objects that they shouldn't have, right? But what you don't want to do is, is if your dog has something, just reach in their mouth and grab it, right? Because your dog can start becoming possessive over this object or various objects and feel like, you know, that's going to create a bigger situation, especially for uh, your daughter who's four and might not be able to really understand how to participate with the dog in, in a, you know, fully comprehensive way like an adult would. So very important that you teach your dog the out command but you want to make sure you're exchanging something, right? So providing something of equal or greater value to your dog in exchange, right? It's like a barter. You basically want to teach your dog to barter with you. And then as they learn that, and as they understand very clearly what that command means, you can hold them to a higher expectation and then get them to just out on command without necessarily having to give them something in return. But when you're starting out, you know, that's how you want to go about it so that they have a good association and they're a willing participant in the process. All right, here's a question from Mama Angel One, tuning in from sunny California. What's the best way to curb leash reactions in overprotective dogs? So a lot of times, uh, cur leash reactions, that can be with a dog that has a lot of frustrations, like what we talked about with teaching some of those self-soothing mechanisms, uh, also really practicing that loose leash walk and engagement so that your dog's focused on you on the walk. Uh, but if your dog is overprotective, a lot of times this can be a relationship issue. It can be just what we're talking about with a level of possessiveness. A lot of people don't realize that some of this, some of this um, protective behavior is not a dog that is trying to necessarily protect, but a dog that sees you, the human, as its resource. So rather than the dog being yours, the dog views you as its. 
And that's not necessarily the relationship that you want, right? So oftentimes that comes as a byproduct of doing too much for the dog, coddling them, being overly affectionate, making things that should be valuable in terms of their resources openly available. Um, So these are a lot of the things that can help to curb those behaviors in general is to look at your lifestyle and to ensure that you're not necessarily uh, doing too much for your dog to where your dog develops this level of resource guarding over you, right? This also is a byproduct of advocating for your dog really well, making sure that when you are out, that you're not letting people invade your dog's space, come in and pet them in the house, things like that. Um, Advocating for your dog is going to really curb some of the overprotective behaviors as well, because your dog will know that you're going to advocate for it and that they're taken care of. All right, here's a question from Candice Mikowski. What to do when a dog walk for a client refuses to walk? Any tips? So I think it, I'm not sure if you're a dog walker or a dog trainer, uh, because this might dictate, right? Like if you're being hired to do dog walking, of course, you want to be able to take the dog for a walk. Uh, However, if maybe you're a trainer, there's maybe something else that you can do, right? If a dog is unwilling to walk, well, you know, that's probably not something that's just happening with you, right? That means that's probably happening with the owner as well when the owner wants to go on a walk. And so, you know, taking a step back and saying, well, what do we need to do to get this dog to be a willing participant in the walk? Uh, One of the first things I would look to is, you know, our main three motivators, toys, affection, and food. Most dogs are going to be motivated by food, not all the time kibble, which is what I like prefer, what I prefer to use when uh, in training. But what I would say is that you need to ensure that the owners have some high value food rewards around. And so that if the dog decides to plant itself down, a lot of the bully breeds do this for some reason. They'll just like sprawl out, you know, full legs and arms just out, or they'll kind of squat and just like anchor themselves in place. Really high food reward, really high value food reward, something they can't turn down that gets them moving and then carry that energy, right? A lot of times getting low to the ground, bending at the knees, like really getting into it. Like honestly, every lesson I do, I'm breaking a sweat. Like I'm out there working, working hard. And it's because I get down really low. I use a lot of movement. I'm like, you know, I'm like treating it like I'm training an athlete, right? Uh, I'm not just on the sidelines coaching, you know, from the side. I'm like right there with them just as like just as much energy as the dog. Uh, so that what I expect out of them is also what I'm bringing. So, you know, if they're refusing to walk, it's not that they're refusing to walk. It's that they're just like not motivated enough to participate with you. Right. So you want to make sure that you are uh, providing that high value food award or some other high value thing to them that is going to encourage them to move with you. Right. And then when they do that huge party, huge, uh, huge party, huge celebration, make sure it's fun, exciting that they want to do it again. And that's what I'd recommend. You know, of course, you can use least pressure, things like that. But with a client's dog, especially at a lesson, like you don't want to use a bunch of pressure when you have a limited amount of time to build a relationship with the dog. Like you don't want the thing with like teaching dogs, right, is that we want them to be willing participants. We don't want them to we don't want them to just participate because they're nervous about the consequences of not participating. Right. That that's compulsion. And we don't want to we don't want to be part of that group. Right. Um, if you're a dog walker, you know, high value food rewards, like we're saying, you know, it looks like you just said you're, you're a dog walker. So high value food rewards, getting low, bring that food pouch and keeping them engaged with you, right? The more that the dog values you and sees value in participating with you, the more likely they are to be a part of the process, right? I'm taking care of a neighbor's dog right now that I was told doesn't like people, crazy on the walks, spastic. She's like 10 years old. I've literally ha- have had no problems with this dog. One of the sweetest dogs I've ever met. All I did is brought some food with me, took the harness off and put a slip lead on instead. And she doesn't even look away from me on the walk. It's the most amazing thing her owner couldn't believe when I sent the video. And it was just something so small. Um, 
just being engaged, not being on my phone, you know, being really, really in the moment with the dog. They, they can sense that, right? You know, our dogs don't know what phones are and all this stuff, but they know when you're paying attention to them, right? Just like they know when they're not pay, when we're not paying attention to them, right? So when you're not paying attention to the dog, they're going to take advantage. They're going to blow you off. They, they know. And so when you're all in on the dog and you're in the moment with them, you're going to see a huge difference in the way that the dog participates with you. All right. Let's see. Lights are awesome. Yeah, the lights are awesome. I'm a big fan. Uh, if you're joining in now, feel free to drop a question in the comment box. I'm probably going to answer this last one or maybe two if we get another one and then hop out. All right. This question is from Heavenly Remedy. How should I get my dog to stop growling at other dogs she sees through the window? This is a really common question. I think if you go on any of the other podcasts, I think I've answered this question every podcast, but um, here's a few different things that you can do if your dog's barking at other dogs or growling out the window, right? What we're talking about is some reactivity. Your dog is triggered by other dogs and is doing that as a way to ideally and try and you know, prevent the other dog's behavior from happening, right? So you don't want the dog to be able to self-reinforce in this behavior. It's just going to perpetuate and get worse and worse and worse over time. So here's what you can do. One, you can just limit your dog's ability to get into that space. You could, you know, gate it off, whatever have you. Not the most ideal thing because, whoo, bless me. Um, not the most ideal thing because then, you know, of course you have a gate in your house and it's just kind of pain in the butt and it's ugly. But the other thing you can do is keep your dog on a leash in the house. And if they, you know, keep them close to you and not let them participate in that as well. Of course, this is something you want to do in the interim and not long term. Um, what you can also do is just recondition your dog to what they can do there, right? So if your dog is at the, at the uh, window like that growling, sit in there, do some work, have the laptop open and just be in there with them and then give them a correction. Like if your dog understands leash corrections, uh, understands that well, have good timing, have a leash on and sit there in that room with them. And anytime that they growl, give them a correction and build an association that there's something unpleasant that's going to happen every time that they participate in that behavior. The timing of this is going to be really important, right? So. Um, a lot of people, the easiest thing is to just limit their dog's access to that area to keep a leash on them and, and give them something else to do instead of that, right? So instead of them just roaming the house free, if your dog's out and you know they're going to do that, teaching them a place command, putting them in the crate, something where you can manage their behavior and just not let them participate in that is going to be more ideal. At the same time, you can, you know, if you have friends or people that you can trust to help work on you with this, you just want to de you know, um, recondition your dog's association to other dogs. So if your dog is just not super friendly, I mean, maybe have some people come over with another dog, have your dog in an inclusion crate, meaning they're in the living room or something where they can see and watch, but they can't actively participate. And maybe that's the way to go about, you know, just cultivating a way where your dog can't growl and do that to other dogs, you know, ideally working with another dog that has a lot of confidence that, you know, isn't going to be put off or react to the, to the growling as well. Um, but there's a, like kind of two parts here, right? Like you want to limit your dog's ability to participate in that behavior, but you also want to, at the same time, teach your dog that all dogs aren't bad either. It's funny. I haven't done one of these in a little while and like my, I feel like my answers are kind of like not as sharp as they normally are. So I apologize. All right. Lindsay Morris asks, how to begin practicing recall out of the house? So we talk about this every once in a while, but with recall, great recall is going to start on leash, right? So if you already tackled recall in the house, your dog you know, understands the command, is consistent in it, 
time to take it outside. Start with a short leash. Make sure that you're also working on distance and duration as well in these commands. And with recall, you want to keep that leash on your dog. Have them come, you know, give them the recall command and then hold them accountable through the leash to come to you. As soon as they get into the proper position that you're looking for, reward them, place them back in the command, do it five or six times. Once they're doing it consistently and you don't have to give a lot of leash pressure, that's when you can move to, say, a, a long line, right? And you want to do this outside. When you're moving out of the house, you want to then take the step into the next, the most, sorry, you want to take a step into the least distracting environment possible. So the house, not many distractions, right? You're pretty much the most exciting thing going on there. But when you move outside of the house, the place that you pick, the environment is going to matter a lot, right? Because if you go from your house to like the park, right? And there's going to be so many other things going on. There's squirrels, birds, smells, other dogs, people, kids on bicycles, all kinds of things that are going to, you know, be competing motivators for your dog's attention. So when it goes from moving from the house to outside of the house, I'd recommend going into like your driveway or your backyard or a very controlled environment where there's not a lot of other stimuli so that you can continue elevating one step at a time. When they've mastered that in the backyard, the driveway, boom, then you can try going to like a more distracting area. And then maybe you can go to Lowe's or Home Depot and or maybe downtown or, you know, just keep progressing and progressing. But if your dog ever then stops getting it or they're starting to regress, take a step back, go to the, the last environment that they were successful in and start there. And just understand that recall is something if you practice a lot, it gets better and better. But also there are just some, there's some waxing and waning in terms, in terms of how uh, reliable your dog will be in different environments. So just take baby steps and always end on a win, right? Make sure that you don't uh, let your expectations exceed your dog's threshold of what they're capable of on that given day. Alrighty. All right, this is probably going to be the last one I'll answer from Baba Jenna. One, two, one, two. My parents' doxy is not friendly to visitors or anyone, especially humans. He will bark, charge, and bite. What can we do? Leave a leash on that dog. Don't let them participate in that behavior. Give them a command to do when people come in, a command that they know that they can be held accountable to. Um, the reason that, though, that your dog probably is, or your parents' dog is probably exhibiting these behaviors is because your parents probably aren't advocating for the dog correctly. A lot of small dogs, this happens to because people invade their space, they get stepped on, the hands are always in their face. They usually have like, you know, um, like hair. And so they like, they're really soft and people want to pet them and kind of people just like almost a lot of times I say just disrespect small dogs and don't treat them like they would big dogs because they're cute and fluffy and they don't look intimidating. And it can make them like really anxious and nervous because think about if someone's constantly petting you or putting their hands in their face, not all dogs love being social or love people in their face. Right. And so a lot of times uh, especially if you're seeing this with a dog, it's oftentimes because that dog's space has been invaded so much that the dogs learn that, you know, being the aggressor, charging and biting and, and doing that has the ability to change another animal's behavior. And they're doing it out of a way to protect themselves and be preemptive for this superstition of a bad thing that, that is likely going to or possibly going to happen to them. And so what's really important that is if your parents want to make a long-term change and not have to have a leash on their dog all the time then there's guest overs to, to not let them participate in that is to, you know, try to repair the relationship that they've established with the dog, really advocate for them hard, do a lot of hand feeding, build engagement and trust. So that dog doesn't feel the need to advocate for itself because it knows it's advocated for by its leaders, which in this case is you or your parents or whomever is typically, you know, working with the dog on a daily basis. So that's what I would say there is that, you know, 
your dog probably doesn't necessarily like other people because of a relationship issue it has with uh, your your parents, right? And the way that the dog's been raised and the things that have happened to it as a result of them not advocating properly, which is nothing personal against them. It's just a very common thing that that tends to happen. So with that being said, I'm going to wrap this up here. And uh, if you're new to the podcast, like, subscribe, whatever you do with podcasts, give it a rating. If you guys are in the stream right now, please go to the podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, give, a star, give the podcast a five-star rating. This episode was like pretty mediocre, I'll say. I feel like not mentally sharp, but hopefully some of the answers helped. I'm super stoked about this new setup. When it's not the weekend, we'll be coming strong with a lot more content and doing this more on a, on a daily basis. So I appreciate everyone engaging today and we'll be back again soon.